Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's election day 2020, the day we go to the polls to elect the person that will lead the country every four years. We got a long tradition of doing this, a long tradition of a peaceable transfer of power. And despite all of the anxiety, this is the big day. I don't know about you guys, but I'm giddy with excitement. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And I am here with my very anxious colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Chris Ranowski, and Laura Johnston. You guys aren't sharing any of this ebullience that I have. You're all like worried. <laughs> I guess I'm just giddy with caffeine. How's that? Is this all carryover from 2016 when you said everything would be okay? I did say everything would be okay. I said <laughs> we would survive. You, There were people in the newsroom didn't believe me. We survived. We're a strong country. We'll survive whatever happens today. Look, it's a it's an incredible system, right? I mean, we don't have military juntas and we don't have overthrow. We go, we vote, we pick our president. Sometimes we get it wrong, but usually we fix it. So let's start our podcast discussion. How many Ohioans voted early before the deadline Monday and how many people requested absentee ballots but have yet to return them? Jane Cahoon, Election Day 2000, we have an enormous turnout, which is a good sign. People are paying attention. What are the numbers? Well, we broke a record. More than 3.4 million Ohioans voted early in the presidential election, and that's that smashes the the all-time record. That's compared to 1.89 million Ohioans who voted early in the uh, 2016 presidential election. And that was, we did, we're not like Texas. We didn't surpass our entire 2016 turnout, but it was 67% of the entire turnout for, for the election in 2016. But 243,000 absentee ballots have not yet been returned. And this information, keep in mind, is from last Friday, which means we could have more early votes that haven't been um, tallied yet. So, you know, that that number is only going to grow. Of those 3.4 million, 1.34 million are the early in-person votes, while a little over 2 million are absentee ballots that people either mailed or, or dropped off. Now, we did wonder whether this was an artificial record because it's not people excited about voting. It's people that don't want to get the coronavirus. So they're voting early to avoid going to their polling place. But voting has started at 630 this morning and we're hearing far and wide of lines like we have never seen really on election mornings in the in the suburbs largely. We're, we're running around today trying to get a feel for it. And turnout is huge today, right? Well, that's that's what we're hearing. Now, that ne- isn't necessarily unusual for a presidential election when turnout is always higher. And some people are saying, you know, with the social distancing, that it gives the appearance of the lines being longer than they are. But but, yeah, we're seeing a lot of people out there this morning. This is Laura. Have you met- oh, sorry. Go ahead, Laura. I was just saying I was getting a like blow up of text this morning from people waiting in line. I have a friend who's 
still waiting in line. It has been there since 7.30. So uh, that's about an hour and a half now. So I think that there are a lot of people out voting. And I was wondering if we were going to see these kind of lines, knowing that, that everybody, you know, so many people were voting early that the lines were crazy at the Board of Elections on weekends and every day. We haven't seen a big turnout in Cuyahoga County in 2016. The last time we saw it was for the two Obama elections. And the analysts always say, if Cuyahoga doesn't turn out, the Democrats can't win. It sounds like Cuyahoga has turned out in a big way, right, Jane? Uh, well, so far, yeah. And that that would bode well for, for Joe Biden. But, you know, people in other places, I think we heard Avon Lake. That's not Cuyahoga County. <laughs> a lot of people out there. So I think we really have to keep a lot of factors in mind when we watch these results coming in tonight. For For example... Donald Trump won by 446,841 votes in 2016 statewide. So Secretary of State Frank LaRose is going to be telling us tonight how many of those absentee ballots are still out there. And as I said, we have, you know, uh, almost, you know, over a quarter of a million um, still out there as of now. So we really... We could see, and you know, they, they do tabulate those absentees first. So, you know, it's thought that more Democrats will vote that way. So we might see this, you know, quote unquote, blue mirage, you know, so the Democrats might be getting their hopes up. But then when some of these in-person votes come in, we might see a lot more red. And then, you know, days later, who knows what could happen with the ones that still haven't arrived in the mail. I, it's just... You know, unless it's a blowout, which I don't think it will be in Ohio, we just have to be really cautious in watching these results tonight. That's what's so much fun. We have no idea what's <laughs> going to happen, and we'll be all up all night watching. This is a great night. We get to do it every four years. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What did Democrat Joe Biden say when he visited Cleveland Monday to close out his campaign for the presidency? Joe Biden keeps up a long record of Democrats of closing out his campaign in Cleveland. We've had a bunch do it now. And he came. I would like to point out we did not put that on the front page of the newspaper because we didn't have a comparable Trump story. And despite what all the people have told me about sticking my head in a place my flexibility won't allow, we are fair. <laughs> Laura Johnson, what did he have to say? So Biden showed up at Burke Lakefront Airport and spoke to a group of around 100 cars that were spaced out to practice social distancing with masks required by everyone in the crowd. And they blared their horns in lieu of applause. He aired a list of grievances against Trump, including what he described as the administration giving up on combating the coronavirus. He said that Trump broke promises he made to workers when he first ran for president in 2016. And his overwhelming message was to get to the polls and help other people get to the polls. He said, I don't care how much Donald Trump tries. There is nothing he is going to do to stop the people from voting. One of the questions we've gotten over the, the past week is what happens if I have been tested positive for COVID? Can I still vote? And the answer is curbside voting, right? Mm -hmm. You can get to the polls and they'll come out to your car and you wear the mask and they have hand sanitizer so that if you have tested positive, you can do it. I guess it's a little difficult to get them to come to your car, but, but they will come eventually. <laughs> okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
Do we know a little more about what triggered First Energy to fire its CEO, Chuck Jones, and two other top executives last week? Chris Ranowski, we can never get enough of talking about the HB6 scandal because our people in the legislature, who are all on the ballot today, refused to get rid of the corrupt thing. So the, the firing of Chuck Jones last week was a big development because he was kicked out the door without any severance. What do we know about why? Right. So yesterday there was a uh, conference call with investors where the new acting CEO, Steve Straw, uh, really didn't talk in great detail about why Chuck Jones and company uh, was shown the door last week. However, there was a, a regulatory filing that was filed that basically says that, quote, potential criminal or civil liabilities, unquote, related to the myriad ongoing federal investigations and lawsuits into HB6 are among the possible risks the company's reputation faced uh, during this crisis. So the company has launched its own internal process to strengthen its internal governance and compliance measures. So, so really it's the, it's the first time you've, you've actually heard somebody talk about the, you know, actual potential crimes being related within first energy, you know, and, and well, actually, so, it's, it's not really the first time because we've talked about it. Well, we've time. talked about it, but I mean, in an official capacity, you know, it, it's, it's, it's been hard to get people to sort of connect the dots between, uh, in, again, an official capacity uh, between the alleged criminal doings of Larry Householder and company and, and folks at first energy who have not been charged with any crimes as of today. No, it's just <laughs> it's just when you have a sixty million dollar bribery scheme and a mm -hmm. company has provided the sixty million dollars, you gotta figure that the eye of the investigators will go in that direction. And as you point out, this is the first official word that indeed the eye is there. So we'll have to see how that shakes out. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What is the possibility that Republicans will lose their supermajority in the Ohio House today, meaning they no longer would have an automatic override of the governor's veto without getting at least a few votes by Democrats? Jane Cahoon, we've long talked about how gerrymandering by the Republicans have created a really bad situation in Ohio where, where you have this supermajority, even though the, the state doesn't break down that way. The state is pretty much divided. This is the first sign that they could lose that supermajority in quite some time. What's going on there? Well, first of all, there, there's pretty much no way that the Republicans are going to lose a majority in the Ohio House, um, partly because of gerrymandering. But you're right. Democrats actually have a shot at if they net at least two House seats. As you said, they would break the, the this three-fifths supermajority that the Republicans have that not only allows them to override uh, governor's vetoes, but they could put measures on the statewide ballot without any Democratic votes. So Jeremy Pelzer laid out like 10 races, and, and he explained the dynamics in each one that, that might allow Democrats and actually uh, Republicans look likely that they're going to flip a few um, seats from the Democrats. But the bottom line is, you know, it looks like the Democrats could net those those two seats. W one of the seats in play is right up here in Cuyahoga County. We've talked about Representative Dave Greenspan, a Republican from Westlake, who faces Democrat Monique Smith. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump's vote percentage in that district was was only about 45 percent. And that's it, that race is really being 
talked about. I mean, Greenspan's regarded as a, you know, a decent guy, a moderate. Um, but as I said, Hillary Clinton won that, won that district. And, um, so you, you never know. I mean, and you just never know what could happen. And as I said, Republicans see some opportunities to like, there's a, there's one in uh, Eastern Ohio where representative Jack Sarah, a Democrat, he's, he's term limited, so he's not running. And it looks like maybe Republicans are going to grab that that seat. So who knows? Um, the, well, the Republicans with, also will probably uh, will definitely keep control of the Senate as well. What's sad about Greenspan is he's like the one guy that did the right thing with regard to HB6. I do wonder, because nobody really does polling that is widespread on the House races. I do wonder whether voters bring HB6 into the to the polling place. I mean, I get it that people vote by party and that, that there's a lot of stand by the tribe kind of thinking today. But we also know voters really detest corruption. And, and this one, it's such a big, stinky case. And we keep hearing from people about it. I mean, it's the it's the other than the coronavirus, it's the topic that is most common in the emails and letters I get that I just wonder whether people are going to vote against the incumbent simply because they passed a corrupt deal and they won't fix it. May I remind you that uh, Larry Householder is once again going to be reelected <laughs> in his district. So I don't know, you know, so much of this is local and, uh, you know, he's, he's popular. He's, he's under indictment in this major federal case. But, yeah, but he, he doesn't have an opponent because all that happened after the primaries. Yeah, he's got a couple of write-ins. write-ins. Yeah, that, but, that doesn't but count. But still, I, I would bet you, even if there was a Democrat on the ballot there, I bet he would win. Oh, wow. I wish we could. I wish yeah, we could. I wish we could right. I, I have a hard time buying that one. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who is the new owner of the old Joggle Lake Amusement Park? And what is the plan for that big chunk of land in Joggle and Portage counties? Lord Johnson, that place has sat empty a long time. A lot of people, including our own John Panna, have put together haunting videos of what it looks like today, all overrun and kind of beat up. What's the plan? Yeah, so this is exciting news. Industrial commercial properties bought the property, which is in both Bainbridge Township and Aurora, from Cedar Fair, which you know is the owner of uh, Cedar Point as well, for an undisclosed amount. It's a deal that's been in the works for years. They're going to build a mixed-use complex with 300 units of apartments or townhouses, and as well as a Menard store, and they're going to start construction quickly. Homes are going to be ready as soon as 2022, and they're going to highlight that 50-acre lake and 120 acres of green space to build a walking and biking trail, possibly a boardwalk, and they're going to dub it the Geauga Lake District. So they're actually going to have markers and even like a mini roller coaster sign that evokes that amusement park spirit. And let me ask you something. Because our population in Northeast Ohio is not increasing. It's actually going down. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have empty shopping centers all over the place. Do we really need more shopping? Could, I mean, won't this devastate <laughs> some other shopping district if we build more shopping out there? Well, we probably don't need more shopping and we probably don't need more houses. But 
they're going to build them and people are going to go. I mean, that's just, (laughs) you know, people go to newer, brighter things. I did watch, you know, you mentioned John Panna's video, and I wonder if the nostalgia factor will factor in there. I would like to go just to see what it looks like. I have so many fond memories from my childhood from going to Geauga Lake every summer with my cousins and going to SeaWorld. And I I haven't been out there. You know, I'd love to see what they, they do with it. I, oh, this is I, Chris I, Warnowski. I, I, I think it's just kind of a bummer that you're replacing something that was, you know, joyous and fun and, and exciting and a place that you take your kids. You're replacing it with a hardware store and houses. <laughs> like that's, that's just what's kind of a hard bummer. Like, you know, you could really, you could really do something interesting with that property. And what's it going to be? A Menards and some houses. Well, and it also gets back to the conversation we were having a couple of weeks ago about the way roads should be designed, according to NOACA, with regard to what it does to poverty-stricken neighborhoods. And we don't have regional planning. Steve Litt talks about this all the time. If we had regional planning, I wonder if the region would approve this, because we don't need it. Right. We really don't need it. And look, I, I have friends and family who are contractors and construction workers, and And trust me, like the construction industry has not really done much in anticipation of the coronavirus changing anything about how our society functions. You know, I mean, they've been building like nothing has changed. So, you know, I I don't think really I don't think communities or these companies have really taken a long look at at the future. And and I think for a lot of builders, it doesn't matter, you know, that, that their their sort of priority is to just get the buildings up. But but I think communities like in the governments should start taking a hard look at, at, you know, how this is going to fundamentally change how our society works and how how we should be building smartly to anticipate that. Well, look, we talked last week about the Pinecrest Shopping Center mm-hmm. being taken over because the, it's going they were broke. They couldn't pay their debt. And so the people that had lent the money to them took it over and now we're going to build a whole new shopping mecca i i just don't somebody will somebody will lose somebody some shopping areas are going to deteriorate and fall apart and as you drive around northeast ohio you see these all over the place look at the richmond mall and look out in uh, the garfield and bedford heights areas it's so it's just one of these years you would think we'd get smart in Northeast Ohio and say, let's be purposeful about how we develop our pristine pieces of land, but not here. It's just, they're going to slap houses up. They're going to slap stores in and the consequences will be what the consequences are. You're, I mean, you're right. And there isn't anyone looking regionally and saying this is a huge undeveloped piece of land that people have so much nostalgia for. What could be the creative use? But the, the reasoning behind that is Cedar Fair owns it and they can sell it to the highest bidder and they can do whatever they want. And, and this has been argued over for years. I think there was like a Meyer that wanted to go in there for a while. So this isn't new. They have been talking about this for a long time. And it's not like a Metro Park swooped in and saved it like they did from Acacia, you know, in Beechwood or maybe that's Lyndhurst. But it, it would have taken a, a philanthropy kind of move to to save this yeah i know i I just it it does bring back the argument about will we ever do regional planning so that this it makes sense because they'll be suffering as a result of this i get it everybody want to run out there and see the shiny new thing and remember when they used to go on that that roller coaster that everybody loves and and yeah but then there'll be 
It was the Clipper in my day. This is Jane Cahoon. (laughs) We had my grade school picnic there every year, and I have great memories of that, except for getting sick on the rides every time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll leave it there. It's this week in the CLE. We did not set a record for coronavirus cases in Ohio Monday, but we broke a record that in many ways is more disturbing. Chris Janowski, what is it? Well, we have been breaking records in cases. It has not been a good couple of weeks uh, for the state of Ohio. To date, we have 221,000 plus cases. But the staggering number that we sort of learned about yesterday in some separate data that was compiled by the Ohio Hospital Association is that we have tripled the daily patient count in hospitals over the last six weeks related to the coronavirus, uh, reaching a record 1,822 patients on Monday. There were 700 on October 1st and the recent low of 563 on September 20th. Among the patients that are hospitalized, 472 were in intensive care units, uh, which is also up sharply over the last several weeks. There were 196 such patients in ICUs uh, on October 1st. So between October 1st and today, we've seen almost uh, uh, close to 300 more people be admitted to the intensive care unit. So um, our the high that we hit uh, throughout the entire coronavirus was in mid-April uh, when we had over 500. So um, capacity is still not an issue uh, statewide with close to 30% of the ICU beds being vacant as of Monday. Um, but that's still, you know, we're still sort of headed in the wrong direction. Yeah, Jane Cahoon, Rich Exner has been saying that with the the records we're breaking for cases, the hospitalizations would follow. But he also says after the hospitalizations, you often see the deaths go up. Th- this is a bad trend. It, it is. I mean, there's a lag time between, you know, when we find out about the hospitalizations and the deaths. So it's you just got to brace for this. It, it just gets worse every day. Yeah, it's uh, it's disturbing. You know, we also often have lower numbers on a Monday than we do the rest of the week. It seems like we climb every day starting Tuesday, Wednesday, and then we break all the records on Thursday and Friday. I guess the good news is we have now gone three days in a row without setting an Ohio case record. That's something. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I'm going to leave it there, guys. It's election day. We don't need to go on anymore. I'm looking for your predictions on what's going to happen today, and I bet you're afraid to give them to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll go out on a limb first. I think it's going to be a blowout day. I think by the uh, end of the night, it'll be clear that Joe Biden is the next president of the country. I think that in the end, we're a country where integrity matters, where empathy matters, and that the middle of the country does not go with the ends justify the means. Okay, oh, I go next? You, you want us to go? <laughs> I want you to debate me. Who wants to take that? Um, Jane? Well, uh, I would just say I think I think Trump will win Ohio, and it, it's probably going to be closer than the eight points um, that, that he got last time. But I think Joe Biden will win in the Electoral College and he'll definitely win in the popular vote. But I think... I'm not sure he'll get Florida or or Texas, but I think he might get like Georgia and North Carolina. And that's about all I'm going to say. Okay, Chris, you go. (laughs) Um, I I think I think we'll eventually have a Biden win. um, And I think. I, I'm pretty confident that we're that the, the the Democratic Party we're going to see a 
change in the in the Senate. Like I think that's to me that's more fascinating, and that's where the more exciting races are taking place. Like you know, the presidency is such a energy drain. Like it's it's hard to think about it just because of you know who the candidates are and 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 how. Like I like I'm optimistic. You know, I think Biden will win, but I don't think the harm that has been done to this country over the past four years, I think we're going to have to sort of limp along a little bit as a country uh, for a while, because it's, I mean, a lot of, a lot has been damaged and it's going to take a long time to sort of repair that. So, well, I would argue that the last four years have unearthed previously unknown problems we have in this country, which is a good thing. You can't, you can't address them unless you identify them. And the last four years have taught us, we have a significant race problem in this country. A lot more people know that now than knew that four years ago. Uh, I think we understand our divide much better. We can't we can't remain this polarized. We can't let Facebook make us war on each other. And so oh, we know that now when we but, didn't know that four years ago. But there is to me, there is some there is some danger in 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 trying to sort of reconcile with people who are, you know, the the blood and soil Charlottesville people like, you know, do they deserve a seat at the table still? And, and, you know, and, and that's, what's worrisome. I think, of, I think that's what worries a lot of people about Joe Biden is that he's going to, to, to reach out to these, these sort of awful characters and, and, and try to bring the country together. And it's like, well, some of these people have behaved in a sense that, and, and have, have elevated racism and conspiracy and and I just you know it's like but, but I, I feel like it would be tiny, nice to quiet that noise down. That's a tiny minority of our fellow citizens. What you you can't say that everybody that voted for Trump is some despicable person that doesn't deserve a seat at the table. A whole lot of people I respect and are smart are voting for Trump. So so and and we can't continue to do what people have done on Facebook saying if you voted for Trump I'm never going to talk to you again there's something <laughs> that these intelligent people see that people who don't vote for Trump don't see and we got to talk about it if we don't talk about it we won't get anywhere and i think the last 4 years have clearly identified that but we haven't heard from Laura Johnson <laughs> Laura what's your prediction <laughs> i i don't know i was so surprised last time that i I don't really want to hazard a guess. I I think that this election. Oh, come on. Chicken. I am being chicken. I, I, you know, I've been surprised over and over. And I think this election has been long and hard and shown some really partisan parts of the country that are, are you know, it's just, it's rough. And I really hope that, that we do all come together and it, it's not just so just every day at each other's throats and so partisan, like regardless of what happens. See, what's, I have what two fighting? clear memories from um, from election night 2016. One was that our political writers were so dazed by what was happening that it was hard to get them moving to write the stories. It almost needed a cattle prod. Jane remembers as well. But the second memory was there were a, there were a bunch of women at the very end of the night when everything was done that were just despondent because of the way Trump has talked about women and the, you know, the recording of him with women. And, and they just, the, the, the feeling was we're not going to make it to, to 2020. The, the, the status of women will be completely obliterated by then. But here we are. It's four years later. I, we made it. it, it and, and obviously we've had the Me Too movement since then. But I, I remember Kavanaugh and everything. And I feel like that 
it, it was hard to see a, a man who had so denigrated women and said such things. And then you're, you know, when you're raising kids and you're trying to keep them to respect other people, it's been rough to, to, you know, to point to the leaders of our country. And, and, and I, and that hasn't been an easy road. And yes, we're here four years later, but I think we're a much angrier nation. And and there's obviously a lot of reasons for that. Um, And I just, I don't want to see another four years of that. So, but we, we can't fix it. Unless we identify it, we've identified it. And today's the day that our fellow citizens pick the leader for the next four years. If, if it's, if it's been screwed up the past four years, as you clearly believe, then today's the day we start to fix it. If, you know, and if America decides it wants to keep things as the status quo, at least they get to have a say. And that's what, that's what today's about. We'll see. It'll be an exciting night. We will be back with the podcast tomorrow. We may do it a little later because we'll be bleary-eyed and and probably hoarse-throated from uh, working through the night. So if we're not quite up when you're used to finding it, wait a little while. We will have a podcast to talk about the results. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thank you to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE.